You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers' Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years' professional writing experience. Each week they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writer Centre at writercentre.com.au. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 98 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Al? I, oh, all right. Yes, oh. no. <laughs> I'm, right. I'm okay, yeah. <laughs> Just <laughs> to think about that for a moment, but no, I think, yeah, no, I think I'm, I'm okay. I'm in the okay range this week. How about okay. you? Okay. <laughs> mm. uh, I'm well, I'm well. I'm, I'm very grateful to you for your advice on the weekend when I texted you with uh, some questions about how in the world I plant my herbs because I've never planted a single thing in my life. I know. I was, you know what? <laughs> I was aware of that as soon as we'd had five minutes of conversation. I was onto it. Yes, I was. <laughs> but I successfully planted all of my herbs and my little, you know, I took all of your advice. I made sure the mint was contained in a large pot. I made a little area for the catnip and cat grass for the, for the cats to loll around in. And I planted all my other little herbies and it looks, it's all very satisfying. I'm kind of understanding what you mean about, you know, getting into your garden. Oh, there you go. Wait till it starts actually growing. You'll be so excited. Yes, very <laughs> excited. Uh, but this is not a show about gardening, everyone. This is no, So You not. Want to Be a Writer. And can you believe we are up to episode 98? No, Valerie, I cannot believe we are up to episode 98. It's quite funny because I was talking to someone last week about they, they're just starting a podcast mm. and um, they were asking me about, you know, the, how it all was, you know, how it all worked and um, and I said to them that they should not start a podcast unless they were absolutely willing to consistently put one out every mm. week or two or however long their cycle was going to be. Yes. And I said to them that they should never underestimate exactly how much work it actually is. Yes. And I said I'm speaking from a from a perspective of experience because we are at that we are at that point we were 97 episodes in yes. if you actually look at the time commitment that is involved in something like that it is a lot of time it is massive but we love it and how else would i get an opportunity to speak to you every single week <laughs> well i could that? text you about gardening you could text me about gardening speaking of questions though um I probably should flag the fact that I have actually reopened my Skype coaching sessions. Oh, yes. Um, yes, I had them. They were sort of pretty much fully booked out last year and I closed them down for a while because I was very busy writing books. Mm. But they are now open again and I'll put the link in the show notes. And um, I basically do them because I do get a lot of emails and not random texts about gardening, <laughs> but I do get random emails and, and people are often asking me questions and this is an opportunity. And I also get, and I'm sure you get this as well, I get a lot of invitations for coffee so that people can mm. pick my brains. Mm. Well, this is an opportunity to pick my brains because I actually don't get a lot of opportunity to go out for coffee. <laughs> so um, if you'd like to book a Skype session with me, I do four a month 
and um, all the details will be in the show notes. You mean there are four openings a month? Four openings per month. And what do you coach people on? Um, well, we talk about it's it's a, all the things that uh, people send me questions about regularly. So I do a lot of uh, what should I write next. Um, I do a lot of um, how do I make the time to write. I do a lot of do I really need an author platform. I do a lot mm. of um, how do I go about you know editing my work when I'm pre- presented with this enormous pile of words. Um, just um, things that I I guess people want to know what I know about Mm. publishing and writing. So I answer those kinds of questions. I don't do manuscript assessments. I'm not doing feedback. You know, I'm not reading your work and then giving you feedback on it. This is specifically a one-hour coaching chat. It's about, you know, getting you to the end of your manuscript if you're halfway through a project. What do you, you know, how do I I get over the writer's block? Those Mm. kinds of questions. Um, So if you just, you know, motivation, inspiration and information, that's Oh, that sounds good. You like that? Yeah, motivation, inspiration, <laughs> information. And information, I know. I like that. Now, it's we will know. put the exact link in the show notes, but if you want to have a look at alisontait.com, T-A-I-T, uh, that's a good place to start and I'm sure you'll be able to find it from there as well. And if you really want to know how to plant your basil, we can also talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> I get free advice on that one from Al, so, you know, <laughs> perks of the job. It's one of the perks of podcasting. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, so speaking of podcasting, let us get on with it. Let what us get on with got? it. We we ha- we are reaching our 100th episode, and so we have a little bit of a reward for listeners. Uh, to celebrate our 100th episode coming up, you could win a $100 voucher to use on courses at the Australian wow. Writers' Centre. Wow. And yes, and all you need to do is leave us a rating or review, well, a rating and review really, on iTunes. And the one yes. that tickles our fancy the most between now and episode 100 will win so we will announce the winner in the episode because we will have to find a way to get in touch with you if you win because we can't tell necessarily from you know your iTunes handle but we will definitely make that happen so all you need to do is leave us a rating and review on iTunes and speaking of ratings and reviews I want to give a shout out to Steph from the UK oh no not Steph from the UK sorry we did that last week from AM M. Gray from Australia, who has left us a five-star rating on iTunes and has said, this podcast is quite simply changing my life. As a longtime blogger with one toe dipped into freelance and an underlying yearning to write novels, Valerie and Alison have given me the impetus to get out of my own way and just write. In January alone, I've had one piece published, another four commissioned, wrote a short story and entered it into a competition. Wow. Yes. Well That's done. amazing. Congratulations. Yeah, A.M.M. Gray. I attribute this flurry of activity directly to the inspiration and advice So You Want to Be a Writer has given me. I'm a mum with three kids and this podcast has proven to me that there is always time to chase down that dream. Thank you so much, Val and Al. Oh, that's wow. wow. Oh, my I'm God. I'm so impressed. Yes, that. very impressed. That's amazing. That's so just... well done, AMM Grace. Yes, absolutely well done. So keep, keep it up. Keep the momentum going. So let's have a chat about what's happening in the world of writing and blogging and publishing this week. There was an interesting article in the New York Times, uh, and it's a review of a book called My Father, the Pornographer. Oh. Pornographer. Pornographer. (laughs) Yes, and it's written by Chris 
Offit. I'm not sure how to pronounce it, but Chris Offit. And he's talking about the fact that his father, Andrew uh, Offit, the fifth actually, <laughs> wrote over 370 works of published pornography before he died in 2013, with hundreds more that actually never made it to print. He could write a book in three days if he needed to. And he kept all his raw material in three ring notebooks. Uh, and he, you know, wrote pirate porn, ghost porn, science fiction porn, <laughs> vampire porn, historical porn, time travel porn, secret agent porn, thriller porn. I didn't even know that there could be zombie porn. Um, I didn't know that this that there were so many different types. But, I mean, interesting that this guy has, you know, decided to write about what it's like to have a father who writes about porn. And um, what would you do if you discovered that somebody like your parent wrote this kind of thing? So is his – is his stuff published? Like, is this all published? Porn? Yes, yes, yes. I mean, 370 works are published. Where There are many that have not been published because, you know, they're just in his drawer or whatever. But, so we're um, talking about like erotica. We're talking about short stories and novels and yes. that sort of stuff. Yes. Called, called pornography, which is interesting because I wonder how you classify it as porn as opposed to um, – and skin. Yeah. Mm. Like I'd be interested to know what the – I mean, is it My Father the Pornographer simply for the title or is it actually hmm, interesting? Well, quite um, possibly, isn't it? Because, you know, it's like the four-hour work week. It, it's not really about working four hours. It's for a great title. All right. So he just really liked to write stories about sex. Of, a lot of manner stories. Of time. <laughs> um. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's an interesting thing. What how, what would I do if I discovered that? I mean, did he know about this before his father died? I'm not sure. It's been a thing. I'm not sure. I think he did know. Uh, no, I don't think he discovered it late, like after his father's death or anything like that. I think he did know. Yeah, because it's interesting because he talks about like the the piece in the Times talks about the fact that what becomes clear is that the real obscenity of uh, he had a very difficult relationship with his father mm. and his father had a difficult relationship with the family obviously mm. and he says here that um what became clear is the real obscenity of Mr Offord's childhood had little to do with his father's profession it had to do with his father's cruelty and the fragile frightening nature of his ego yes. so yeah it's a, I don't know like um if it was something that I mean it's obviously violent cruel I'm not sure what I'd make of it to be honest mm. if my if my father was writing that but I guess it's also part of your childhood if it's what you've grown up with, isn't it? It's sort of like he's always done it. Yes, uh, it just becomes your normal, right? Mm. Mm. Yeah. And his mother typed his manuscripts. Yes. His mother typed the father's manuscripts. Yes. Mm. Yeah, it just becomes normal. I guess people write what they write. I mean, at the end of the day, like he aban- it says here that he abandoned a um, a career and just – as a travelling insurance salesman, hmm. um, to be a professional writer at 36, which is a big thing to do when you have a family. Yeah. And then he's writing, I guess, sex sells. So he's written what sold. Hmm. Um, he's also, like, he wanted to be a writer of science fiction and fantasy novels hmm. and actually published 30 works in those genres. Hmm. But I guess there's, I mean, I I guess it's like anything, you if you've got to support a family with it, you write what sells, don't yes, you? Yes, yes. And this is clearly exactly what right. sold. 
So I don't know if he, I don't know if the son has actually looked at that aspect of it as well. But inter- interesting, like it, I don't know that it's something I would necessarily read. read it sounds yeah. kind of sad and depressing in many ways. Well, yes, it does. Not not for the fact that he wrote erotica or porn, but for the fact that they had obviously an extreme. It sounds like the relationship, relationship between the yes. I mean, I'm not talking yes. about the the aspect of what he wrote, but um, it just sounds like the book itself is is a very difficult relationship and therefore a difficult read I would imagine Mm -hmm. well Mm. perhaps we should talk about something a little bit cheerier then (laughs) okay let's do that let's move on then to an interesting very interesting post uh that was in observer the observer and it's by a guy called Brent Underwood and we'll put the link in the show notes and it's called behind the scam what does it take to be a best-selling author with best-selling author in quote marks um, and that's the question he poses and his answer is $3 and five minutes. So what this guy has done as a bit of an experiment because he reckons that there are so many people out there calling themselves best-selling authors, especially when you call yourself an Amazon bestseller because all mm. you need to do is be a bestseller in your category at a particular point in time. And if you happen to do that and you can screenshot the fact that you are a bestseller in your category, no matter how niche that category is, at a mm. particular point in time, you can forever call yourself an Amazon bestseller. So what he did was he put up a fake book on Amazon. He took a photo of his foot. <laughs> I have to say, I've read, I've read this piece and we'll talk about it in a minute, but I laughed and laughed and laughed so much. But anyway, yes. So he's put up a photo of his foot. Yes. And he's done, he's used the thing where you can make a cover, uh, you know, on Amazon and, and he's could he's called the book putting my foot down <laughs> mm. and he made it to he, he chose a, a niche that was pretty narrow mm. um, you know he, and, and it, it didn't take him very long at all it only took him three minutes to put the fake book up onto Amazon um, and yeah he managed to get bestseller status in a minute because he emailed four of his friends and asked them to yes <laughs> asked them to download it yes and of course in the particular niche that he was in which was as you say extremely narrow and that is um a technique that a lot of authors use to um attain bestseller yes um if you choose a niche where there are two people writing then and you get four friends to download the book then you will be a bestseller yes. um so his, his niche was called transpersonal yes and, and he also chose the, <laughs> what else did he choose? There were two. Freemasonry and secret, secret societies. societies. <laughs> and he's managed to become a bestseller. And look, I, I think it's an interesting thing because I posted this um, on the Australian Writers' Centre Facebook page and, you know, asking the question, do you feel that bestseller has lost its guilt edge? Like, I mean, it just seems like everyone's a bestseller now. And as somebody commented on the Facebook page, it absolutely depends on where the bestseller status comes from. Like mm. people will still pay attention to a New York Times bestseller. Yes. For example. And that is still something that is a big, that's a big deal, you know. Yes. So I think it depends on, I think you have to look not just at I'm a best-selling author, but where does where is that status inferred from? Is it just because you've actually managed to, you know, Put a photo of your foot. 
or is it because you saw you put a photo of your foot on the on Amazon? <laughs> yes. I'm going to do one calling um, best calling it best foot forward. I think. <laughs> I'm going into competition. What do you think? <laughs> yeah, see if you can beat him. <laughs> but we'll put the link in the show notes if you want to have a look at the at the original post. And I think as a reader, it's interesting to read a post like that because I think mm. it's worth knowing how these things work. Yeah, absolutely. Don't you think? Yeah. yeah. Definitely. Um, let's move on to uh, a post that was in Thought Catalog and it's called 40 Words for Emotions You Felt But Couldn't Explain. And this is from the Dictionary of Obscure Sorrows. <laughs> oh. Who is the brainchild of writer John Koenig who uh, gives words to the feelings you may not have even known you were having. Mm. Oh. So an example um, is dead reckoning, and that is to find yourself bothered by someone's death more than you would have have expected, as if you assumed they would always be part of this landscape, like mm. a lighthouse that you ca- could pass by for years until. Like David David Bowie. Well, yes. Well, like yes. That. That's 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 true. Mm. That's exactly right. Key frame is another one. A moment that seemed innocuous at the time but ended up marking a diversion into a strange new era of your life, set in motion not by a series of jolting epiphanies but by tiny imperceptible differences between one ordinary day and the next. Mm. That could really be also called sliding doors. It could be. Mm. One that I particularly like because I actually have this – I do – feel this regularly yes is the word is sonder oh, and yes. it's the, the realization that each random passerby is living a life as vivid and complex as your own populated with their own ambitions friends routines worries and inherited craziness an epic story that continues invisibly around you like an anthill sprawling deep underground wow and it's so true I often think that Do and I, the other thing I, oh yeah all the time I always I, I like to look it's a little bit like when you're writing a novel, mm. um, secondary characters, you know, extras that wander mm. on in, um, and to each of those people, the story is their story. It's not the, it doesn't. It's not the story that belongs to the protagonist. It's their story because they're looking at it from their perspective, yes. and they are the hero of their own story. Yes. So every single person that walks past you is the hero of their own story, and their story is as massive and complex as your story is. And half the time, all you're doing is like nodding at them or something. Mm. And I also like trains for that reason too, because mm. I, you know, particularly in the city, when you when you're on a train and you go past an apartment building or something, or you go past the back of a house and you'll see, and it'll be lit up at night and you'll mm. see people doing their thing. Mm. And, you know, it's like they're all of those people in that apartment building. There could be 12 windows looking at you. They're all doing their own thing and they're all having their own story. Yes. While you just kind of go past like for 30 seconds or even less. And yeah, I, I, that's, I have to say that that is, it's an excellent emotion and I'm not sure if the word is quite right for it, but I, um, yeah, I feel that regularly. I suppose I do that in restaurants. When I'm out for dinner in a restaurant, I make up little stories about all of the other patrons basically and say, okay, well, that's their first date and, okay, those people, they're going to get divorced and he's having an affair. And <laughs> and they're looking at you going, who is the crazy woman staring at us? In the <laughs> quite possibly. 
quite possibly. I don't go to out to restaurants that often, so <laughs> hopefully, you know, not many people. You're obviously very interested, yes. Uh, too interested, perhaps. Yes. All right. <clears throat> Let's move on to another link from the Huffington Post, and it's by Holly Robinson who talks about, well, the, the, the article is called Confessions of a Ghostwriter Pay No Attention to That Woman Behind the Curtain. Now, I thought it was interesting because she was talking to someone and um, she said this, this often happens to her. She, and they, she talked about the fact that she's a ghostwriter and uh, that person said, but don't you even care if your name's not on the cover? And he, the person asked, sounding offended on her behalf. Now, you've ghostwritten books. I've ghostwritten books. Yes. Do you care? No. Yeah. Not, not in that instance. Not when I'm writing for someone else. No. Mm. Because it's, for me, at that point, it's, um, it's a project fee job. And yes. it's, you know, like it's, um, I'm being paid as a professional to help someone else out. So I just do the job, hand the project over, and that's that. It's not my book. It's mm. their book. Mm. So yeah, no, I don't. I don't. Doesn't bother me at all. If I'd written my own book and my name wasn't on the cover, I'd be very upset. Yes, <laughs> like if they, you know, put someone else's name on that. But no, this is no. That's a complete different thing. I think you know when you're ghostwriting, you're you're there as a professional to do a job, and that's what you do. Yeah, yeah. And an interesting thing that another person said to her was, "I bet you hate not being able to write fiction full time." <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's not like a book is really yours if you're ghostwriting, is it? Is, the person continued. Hmm. Yeah, no, that's – well, no, because it's different – they're different jobs. Like, yeah. you, you know, and the other thing is that most people can't write fiction full-time. I'm sorry to yes. burst the bursts of bubble, but, you know, most people can't do that, particularly when they're starting out. So you take on – I mean, I do. I take on professional jobs to pay the mortgage while I do – and then do the – which gives me the freedom to do the things I like to do, mm. which is write fiction. Yeah, and she gives us some insight into the world of a ghost. She's written, ghost written several books. Yeah, yeah. And um, she said that these projects have also led me to develop more creative ways of working since one reason celebrities make all that money is because they never sit still. I interview mm-hmm. my clients in person occasionally, but more often by phone as the client rushes to the next TV shoot or salon appointment. One actress mm. was so busy on a stage production that she had to answer my questions via Dropbox. I fed the <laughs> questions to her talent agent who then sent me her audio files of her responses. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's interesting. I never would have thought of that, to be yes. honest. Yes. It's supposed to interview just feed them the questions and let them answer in their own time. And but, the, but they're not sending you written responses, so you're still going to get more of that spontaneity and that thought process, that rambling sport thought process. Yes. Which is what you kind of need sometimes with with that kind of work. You need the rambling thought processes so that you can then find the tangents that you need to explore further as well. Exactly. So whereas people don't ramble as much when they send you a written response I'm going to remember that, that yeah that's really a well. good one because when mm. people do write a written response or while some people um you know ramble on forever busy people tend to be dot points yeah. and that's really not what you want no it's not because you don't get enough personality in a dot point and no. with a <laughs> project like that you need the personality you need to be able to see the thought process so that you can get the voice right and get the yeah all of that sort of stuff so I think 
Yeah, that's it's a good tip. It's a good one. Let's take. Let's all take that one on board. Yes. <laughs> Alison's learned something today. I have. I'm so excited. (laughs) All right. Let's move on to our giveaway for this week. Listeners, you have a chance to win a copy of Killing Love by Rebecca Paulson. And entries close Monday, the 7th of March. So this is a, you know, this is a memoir by Rebecca Paulson. And she talks about the fact that on her 33rd birthday, her father, niece and nephew were murdered. The murderer had been part of her family, her brother-in-law, uh, and who is the father of her children. And Killing Love is Rebecca's journey through homicide, grief, the police investigations, the media interest, the court cases, the moments of great despair and the healing. So tragic but apparently an uplifting story. So yeah yes (laughs) but a true story now if you would like your chance to win go to writerscenter.com.au slash win and uh, if you are listening to this episode in the future because you're catching up on the back catalogue don't worry if you go to writerscenter.com.au slash win there will be another giveaway there for you This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. If you'd like to write fiction for kids and teens, our five-week online course in writing books for children and young adults will help you get there faster. Find your voice, create characters, dialogue and plots to fit your age group and write compelling stories that young readers will love, all in a couple of hours each week. You'll also enjoy the convenience of learning from anywhere and get your very own tutor providing personalised feedback on your writing. To find out more, visit writercentercomau slash WBC. All right, we have something a bit different this week to our writing craft book. We don't oh. have a book. Have, <laughs> we, have a we, have? <laughs> we have a, a link. We have a link. Oh, we love a link. Yes, from the BBC. Uh, and it's in their journalism section, and it's it's. I thought it was really useful. The post is called "Writing: Fashionable, Foreign, and Superfluous Words." Now it talks about the fact that we sometimes use these words and don't really think about whether we're using the right one. And uh, one example, so the, the, in terms of fashionable words, one of exa- one example that they give is saying uh, using the word "raft." for a lot of, you know, uh, a raft. The the Tories have announced a vast raft of policy statements. Mm. And it's something that is used a lot, but actually consider, is that actually the right word? And there's a bunch of other uh, words that they say a little bit overused and possibly used in the wrong way, like leading edge, like interface, like quantum leap, like uh, pivotal, kickstart is used a lot, yes. ecosystem, especially these days. So it's something worth thinking about and it's worth having a look at this post. It also talks about there are some foreign words that we might bandy about and but we don't actually necessarily know the, the meaning of, like um, uh, per diem. Oh, yes. Inter alia. Do you know do you know what no. that means? Tell me, yeah. what does it mean? You know well, inter alia means among others. Oh, per right. diem is 
for Are we back on Latin. <laughs> well, things are. It's back to Latin. Oh, well. I'm still laughing though because I love when we were talking about the raft. They yes. follow it up with, you know, what is a sweeping raft? When was the last time you heard someone say, "I must get home. I've got a raft of ironing to do." <laughs> <laughs> what is your like? Let me ask you this question: What is your least favorite word at the moment? What is the word that everyone Ooh. is using that actually drives you crazy? Have you got one? Oh goodness me! I've got one. You want to hear mine? Please tell me. Disruption. Oh, yes. Everything in the known is, I mean, honestly, there is that much disrupting going on out there at the moment. It is a surprise that we are not living in, you know, unending, never-ending chaos. Don't yeah. use it. Like, really? Are you really disrupting the cyber landscape? Probably not. <laughs> you know, very few people actually do. Yeah, everyone's just, anyone who's in tech at the moment is called a disruptor, even though they're not necessarily disrupting anything. They just I, have a website. Exactly. Like, am I disrupting? I could be a disruptor. What am I disrupting, Val? My sweeping raft of ironing? Yeah, possibly. Possibly. <laughs> have you got one or is it just me? Oh, I need to think about that one. I don't mm. have I, – I agree with you about disruption. I think it's ridiculously overused. Mm. Um, interestingly, with that, in with the – you know, world of journalism generally, I think that a lot of startups and people in the tech scene get a disproportionate amount of media coverage. Mm. Like they literally put up a website and they get the front page of the Sydney Morning Herald or something. It's like, it's just a just website. Just because they, I wish I could get the front page just yeah. for having a website. I've got one, people, please. Um, these are the other, I say a friend of mine who works as a sub-editor in business magazines um, put a post up on her a Facebook page the other day saying these are the buzzwords that really annoy customers. Do not use, okay? Mm. They are authentic, artisanal, crafted, experiential, immersive, curated, innovative, disruptive, bespoke and heritage. So oh, yes. if you're working for someone else, think very, very carefully about the words that you are using because a lot of it just sounds like Weasel speak. Because the other day I was walking past a bread shop and the sign in the window said artisanal organic bread. And this guy walked past and went, the only word I know in that sign is bread. Bread. (laughs) (laughs) It's so funny, isn't it? I mean, that's the thing. Like often simple is, well, no, always simple is best. You know, if you're really yes. trying to convey a message, it's a simple <laughs> word, not just a word that's currently, you know, in fashion. Yes, that's right. Mm. All right, let us move on now to our writer in residence this week. Who have we got? Well, we're on a bit of a children's author theme at the moment, and that's actually not um, a – it's not a trend. It's just – it just seems to be the way things are going at yes. right now. But our author But last week, week is, we, we didn't. Last week we had oh, we didn't, Adrian we? McKinty. We did too. And that, how good was that? It's a thriller author. Yes. We got so that, and thank you very much for all your kind words about that interview, by the mm. way. I received so much feedback via social media and via my email about how much you guys had enjoyed yes. that particular interview. And it does warm the cockles of my heart, it has to be said, when I know that it's, um, you know, really hit the spot with you. Uh, anyway, that's completely aside. Let us talk <laughs> about this week's fabulous interview, which yes. I hope will also warm the cockles of your heart and disrupt your day in the yes. nicest possible way. With a raft so, of <laughs> with a raft of wonderful ideas, fabulousness. Mm. Um, 
Now I'm so off track. I don't know what I'm doing. Okay, taking a deep breath. Yes. This week we are talking to the wonderful Jen Storer. Mm. And Jen is a children's author. She has won awards. She has been shortlisted for many more. She's the um, the author of the very popular, if you have young girls in your life, the very popular Truly Tan series. Mm. And she has some new books. Um, she's honestly works so hard. She's a very productive author and we're going to talk a little bit about how she manages to do that. Um, but it is a terrific interview and I hope you will enjoy it. Jen Storer has written 18 books for children, including the best-selling Truly Tan series, for which she won a 2014 David Award, and the acclaimed gothic fantasy Tenzi Farlow and the Home for Mislaid Children, which was shortlisted for everything from the CBCA Book of the Year Awards to the Prime Minister's Literary Awards in 2010. Her latest book is also her first foray into picture books, Clary's Pig Day Out, illustrated by Sue DeGennaro. Yeah. Did I pronounce that correctly? Super Yeah. Lovely. Okay. So, welcome to the program, and uh, thanks very much for coming along to have a chat with us today. Thank you, Al. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, let's start at the beginning. Um, what was your first published novel, and how did it come about? Uh, my first published book was a little Aussie chomp. Oh, if right. You, yeah. If you remember the uh, Penguin series, they did nibbles, bites, and chomps. And uh, so that was the first book. I think that came out in 2003. And um, that came about in a really strange way because I had gone back to school in my 30s. I had a bit of a... um, a bit of a midlife crisis. <laughs> An early one. Well, my husband left me, so that sort of started oh, a ball rolling and I had a little baby and I thought, oh, I need to really do something that I really, really want to do rather than doing things that everybody expects of me. And so I, I had this big change and I came to Melbourne and I enrolled at Monash University and instead of taking a really wise course, I decided to do um, literature. <laughs> Very practical, very practical. This is your chance, Jen, because I had been a nurse and a public servant and all sorts of practical things and it was just, I was dying on the inside. So um, so I went off to uni and um, I did a BA and I just loved every single minute of it. I did a very traditional BA, you know, Shakespeare and Milton and all that sort of stuff. And um, And then when I came out, I was like, okay, I've got a piece of paper. I've got about $11 in the bank. What am I going to do? <laughs> And uh, it was just this weird course of um, synchronicity where a friend of mine had just started working at Black Dog Books, Mm -hmm. which was a children's publisher in Gertrude Street in Fitzroy. And um, she said, you know, maybe you could get some work experience there, you know, Um, give Andrew, and it was Andrew Kelly owned it then, Mm -hmm. give Andrew a call and see what happens. And I thought, okay, take a risk. Yeah, so it was a bit of a sliding doors thing because I was still, I still had, I had my suit prepared for an interview that week for a drug rep job. Oh, wow. (laughs) And this other thing. So I called Andrew and he said, sure, come in and you can do a week's work experience. And so I went into Black Dog Books and um, ended up staying there. And uh, it was just. As an editor? As in everything. Oh, right. I was called the glue. Andrew used to call me the glue. Wow, Okay. Yeah, so I got... Interesting job description. (laughs) What 
did you do in your last job? I was the glue. Excellent. I was the glue. So I kind of did what what uh, everybody wanted me to do. You know, I just went from project to project to project, sometimes rewriting manuscripts, sometimes editing, sometimes designing, working things up. I was really heavily involved in working things up in creative development. Right. Uh, yeah, so I just learned the industry the the educational basically that side of the industry really really thoroughly it was a, um it was a baptism of fire and it how was, long were you there for doing that I was about there for I think I was there for about maybe eighteen months okay it wasn't a long time but it was felt like a long time because I learned so much and it was so full on it was so much fun it was just amazing and there were a lot of um a lot of Australian illustrators and authors and stuff who were still they were out there but they were still finding their feet so I was sort of going through with a lot of people who are now really established right you know Lee Hobbs who's now our children's laureate you know I remember working on some of his stuff Terry Denton Mitch Bain I got to meet lots of amazing people during that time Craig Smith I worked very close with closely with for a long time um yeah so it was this amazing experience yeah and how did you go from that to well, writing? I left, I left BDB and I went to Mimosa, which was um, bought out by McGraw Hill while I was there, again in the sort of same capacity. And so I was doing a lot of educational writing, so I really cut my teeth on educational writing. Um, and then, But in the meantime, I was thinking I really want to do something for trade and so I was working on this little, little book, just this little book called I Hate Sport. <laughs> From the heart, was it, Jen? Sorry? Was it written from the heart? I hate sport. Straight from the heart. Because I'd been working on a, a sporting series back at BDB. Right. One afternoon I was sitting around with Andrew having a coffee and I said, it's just ironic that I'm working on a sporting series, you know, having to ring up all these elite athletes and people and, you know, I don't even know who I'm talking to. <laughs> And um, I said, you know, I said, I hate sport. Someone needs to write a book about that. There's plenty of kids out there that hate sport. And so I thought, hang on a minute, I might do it myself. So that's what was happening in the background. Um, And and that was just a little love project on the side. But, yeah, so I sent it out to a variety of educational, uh, of trade publishers. Mm -hmm. And um, I remember I got a rejection and an acceptance on the same day. Oh, wow. Yeah, six months later. Well, wow, on yeah. the same day. That's, well, that's a coincidence for you. It yeah. just goes to show you the, the way the publishing industry works, isn't that's it? Right, that's right. And it depends on how a publisher is placed. You know, I Hate Sport was only little, so um, it had to sit in a series. So it was perfect for an Aussie chomp. So Penguin were really well placed to publish it. Yep. Um, whereas some of the other publishers, they, they, they would put out a little 13,000-word book just on its own. It's not worth it. So um, so were you drawn to children's fiction because your first experience in publishing was with children's fiction or was there another reason for that? Yeah, very much so, very much so. I, I mean, I'd always loved children's fiction yeah. loved, and I had fiddled about and tried to write uh, picture books way back in the 80s when I was nursing oh, okay. uh, and I got all the rejection slips and whatnot. Uh, but, um, but, yeah, it was really a turning point when I went to BDB because I did – when I came out of uni, I kind of had my sights set on screenwriting. I absolutely love cinema and I'd done a lot of – I did a, a double major in, in um, lit and cinema. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, so screenplays were kind of my thing that I was really mucking around with. But, 
yeah. It was Are you just... still writing screenplays now? Like, do you because your whole career has basically been in children's fiction, yeah. of different age groups. Yeah. Um, do you do you I, have a love project of a, a screenplay on... or a novel? Or? I draw on screenplay uh, writing all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, it's, it really influences how I write books and, and films really influence me. And I actually adapted one of my books into a screenplay, one of my novels, just for the exercise, oh, right. um, which was fantastic, yeah. And I actually put it on the blacklist, which is this uh, screenplay thing in um, Hollywood. You can, oh. Yeah, you can pay to put your, your book on there and have it assessed, right, your, right. your screenplay. And it did it did well. It came. I think I got an eight out of ten, oh. and some really lovely feedback. But I just haven't had time to follow it up. Okay. <laughs> so, is there? Do you have a preferred age group that you really like to write for, as far as I the really children's like, fiction? Yeah, I really like to write middle grade. Uh, you know, for ten, sort of ten year old, eight to ten year olds, because they're they're really good readers and they adore story, but they're not. They don't have attitude yet. You know, they're, they're not dealing with. Um, puberty or any of those sorts of things so they're really focused on books and stories and so they really live in the stories that you write yeah I just get it from the kids that write to me they they read my books repeatedly they'll write and say I've read truly tan six times and you know or I went to Scotland and I forgot my truly tan book and I was beside myself sort of (laughs) so it's beautiful it's just the best feedback any writer can have is that you know that kids just live in the stories and they send suggestions and um, outlines for for the next book and type suggestions. They make videos and send you videos of themselves dressed up as the characters and doing stuff. So yeah, it's a wonderful world, the world of the ten year old. <laughs> so let's talk about Truly Tan for a moment because it is a truly successful series. Did you see yeah. what I did there? Did yeah. Yeah. yeah, I'm on fire. <laughs> did you did you always have it planned as a series? Like, no. how do you know that a book is going to be a series? No. Uh, oh, there you go. Yeah, it can. All these things can happen really accidentally. So Truly Tan was um, uh, just a little standalone book that I was working on on the side and I uh, gave while I was writing Tenzi Farlow actually and uh, I gave it to Penguin and they really loved it and they said, hey, we should make this into a series. And I thought, oh, <laughs> okay, um, all right. So that, that was, it was Penguin that sort of came up with the idea of making okay. it into a series and so they published the first the first one, and they renamed it and had a very long, complicated name. And oh, a whole lot of things happened, and it just went out into the world and disappeared without a trace. Oh. Yeah. And I had already written, this is a big story. So I had already written book two without a contract and um, spent the best part of a year sort of writing book two. And unfortunately, because book one failed, there was no market for book two. So I just had to shelve the project. So there was a lot of tears. Yeah, really? (laughs) But, you know, in my heart I kind of didn't give up because on Tan herself and on the stories because I just knew I had this really, really adorable character that I loved writing about. And the few kids that did read the first book were very, very passionate. It had like this little cult following. And so I... I kept it in my heart. There's nothing I could do with it, but I just kept it in my heart. And then out of the blue, you know, I don't know, three or four years later, I opened up my email and had an email from HarperCollins and they said that they would love me to write some middle grade fiction and did I have anything? 
and I and it just so happened more more synchronicity that tan had gone out of print that same week oh. and the rights had reverted to me and I said to Harper Collins well I you can have truly tan if you want and they were like what <laughs> yes please and so that's how it started and so, so they, they took Truly they, Tan on and so you what, tan on and they, they put the first book out again they the second book? It, repackaged it, renamed it, gave it back its original title um, and uh, contracted me for four books straight up. Wow. And then by the time I was sort of halfway through the third one, they said, I think this, they said, we'd like to make this bigger and so now it's an eight-book series. So. so the package, so I guess that just goes to show you, doesn't it, like because... Um, you've got something there now that is really successful and it has yes. been, you know, really well received both, um, you know, commercially and critically. Um, and so, but, you know, in its first sort of what, incarnation, it, yeah. it disappeared. So yeah. Yeah. Like, what do you it think the difference was? Such, it got off to such a wobbly start. Well, I, I think we really lost our way with the naming of it. I think because it, it was called um, Tan Callahan's Secret Spy Files, The Mystery of Purple Haunt. No one can remember that. No, whereas truly tan, you're not going to forget. Truly tan, bang, you just you get it straight away. Yeah. Um, the the cover was a um, bitsy, you yeah. know. It was kind of the illustration was gorgeous. Caroline McGurl did the illustration, and I love Caroline, and I, I want to work with her on more things, and we're good friends. But the way it was all designed and put together didn't showcase the illo properly and it didn't make tan stand out as an iconic figure whereas claire robertson her illustration and her approach is it, it's very iconic mm-hmm. like you just know tan straight away and she's very accessible and that that age group also they like to imagine that they can draw the characters as well as the illustrator okay yeah so they really do this is what I've been noticing, that they really do go for lovely clean lines. Right. Yeah. So the covers, I mean, what we're basically saying here then is that the title and the cover are absolutely critical. They're huge. Yeah. They're huge with kids. Yeah. I can just see it. Sometimes I've done focus groups and I've laid books out just just to get them said, you know, which books do you like here? And, and, and without a word of light, they will shun particular books that I know are really good books. But they, they won't even pick them up. They won't even touch them. Mm. <laughs> you know, they're so visual. That's really interesting. Yeah. So yeah. for a series to take off, though, it has to be about more than the cover. Absolutely. So what do you think the pre, like, you know, because like, I know that quite a few of our listeners are writing, you know, uh, children's fiction and they're writing fiction that they would like to be a series. So, you know, the prerequisites of a series that really take off, I mean, clearly that protagonist, that main character is essential. Yeah, you've got to have a really strong main character. But you, it's also, I think, personally, I think voice is just absolutely crucial for kids. Mm. You've got to get the voice right and it's got to be a very warm and very um, inviting sort of voice and you've got to create a world that they want to keep re-entering. Mm. So it needs to be very visceral. Mm. You know, um, so I use a lot of food in my books. <laughs> And that's got nothing to do with how you feel about food at all, right? No, no. But, you know, I know kids really respond to it. They just love food. Mm. Um, it, it makes it real for them. Uh, so, so yeah, it's really important that you get all those little things. You pay attention to those sorts of details. Mm. So you write both series fiction and standalone. Do you have a preference? Like do you, is there, 
do you prefer to write one or the others? Or I find myself getting a bit resistant every time I'm lining up to write another tan book. Um, yeah, uh, but then once I'm back in her world, I'm happy again. Okay. But but I do I do like the freedom of standalones. I love I love you know I love creating new worlds and going into new situations and new characters. I find that really stimulating. From a publishing perspective, though, the series is particularly in that age group is so incredibly it's, popular, isn't it? Yeah, it's, kids just want more. They're voracious. Yeah. I mean, they come up to you at launches and say, when's the next one? <laughs> I just want to put my head on the desk and cry. <laughs> but I also, like parents, as a, as a parent and also as an author who goes to these things as well, you get um, parents going to you, oh, can you just, you know, they love finding a new series that the kids will read because then they know what the next eight books are going to be, whereas right. as opposed to scratching around for things That's right. that, they need to, that they need to, you know, start again. So I, I get why. I yeah, do I understand why it's so popular. And, and particularly I'm finding that particularly with Danny Best because Danny Best is wooing a lot of boys that wouldn't read normally. Oh, and so great. It's great, yeah. But so I'm getting letters from mums saying, when's the next one, when's the next one? He's actually reading, you know. So they want to strike while the iron's hot. So you've yeah. got how many, Danny? Because Danny Best came out last year. Yes, so right? there's yeah. four in that series. And the what, the four of them are all out already? No, 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 no. They're coming out once a year. One, one, one a year. One yeah, a year. So, yeah, the next one comes out this year, later this year. I think it's August. Danny Best is, um, <laughs> they're very, they're really complex to pull together because they're so heavily illustrated. So Mitch and I work really hard on, on the layout. And Steph, the designer, is, oh, my God, she works so hard on those books. Yeah. So they're deceptively complex. So you wouldn't want to, I don't think you'd want to be churning them out any faster because they'd lose their quality. They've got lots of running gags and marginalia and, yeah. and graphic, little graphic sort of um, comic-y strips and all sorts of things going on. So they, there's a lot of work. Yeah. So you and Mitch collaborate quite closely right from the start with those mm -hmm. or do you write That's, the words and then... I write the words, then uh, the manuscript goes to Mitch and then uh, she starts doing illos and, you know, sort of mocking stuff up and then we physically meet. So we actually met last week okay. and she, she has miles and miles of illustrations to go through and we just work out what works best. Mm, yeah, and so like because Danny Best books are short stories. Yeah, uh, and so um, we started out with six short stories, but we've already culled two, and they can go into book three because we need to open it up so there's lots of air and around the text and lots of space for the illustrations. Because the last thing we want the Danny Best books to look like is a school reader. Yeah, they don't want to look like hard work. Some illustration plonked here and there. Yeah. You know, they need to really work together and they're really inviting world. And lots of space, lots of, like there, there are practically empty pages in the Danny Best book. Maybe just a paw print or a dog poo or something. Dog poo, lovely. Do you enjoy the collaborating with an illustrator like that? Absolutely. It's awesome. I love it. Mm. My publisher at Harper, um, Lisa Berryman, is extremely hands-on and it's just a joy. She really believes in bringing creatives together. Mm. Um, a lot of publishing houses keep the, the creatives apart and that's mm. for different reasons. I'm not saying it's bad, but, but from my perspective as, a, as an author, I just love it. I love being in the same room and because that's when the fire really starts to crackle. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you bounce off each other and it, and you get something completely new. Yeah, and we get as silly as each other and, and stuff comes out of that. 
So when you sit down to write um, a, a book, whatever it may be, um, say you were going to sit down tomorrow to start a new something, yeah. do you plan your books out or do you just start with an idea and, and write? I, I work in three different ways depending on the project. I've, I've, I've figured that out over the years. Right. So um, some books I write organically and I just let it unfold. Mostly with fantasy I work organically. I can't plan fantasy. Mm. I get too bored mm. and it comes out really contrived. Mm. Um, and so Tenzi Fowler was written organically and The Accidental Princess was also organic. Um for Truly Tan, I, I now plot those in advance because I have to w- write one a year and I have to be fairly fairly quick mm-hmm. so there's no time to ramble around, but also because it's a mystery. So you've got to have a bit of a clue of where you're going. Mm. Mm. So that, that, And then I also have another way where I um, write organically, then I stop and I plot a little bit and then I start writing organically again and then I stop and I plot a little bit. So that's kind of my, I call that my Swedish chef. <laughs> method um and, and what, so what do you use that for i use that for the 14th summer of angus jack which was right. my fantasy novel that came out late last year yeah that's yeah. more of a ya sort of an older reader uh, no no that's middle grade upper oh, middle, middle grade sorry mm-hmm. yep yep so sixty-five thousand words i think so very much um and also that was a sort of a project a bit like Tenzi, sort of written on the side so i'd work on it for a couple of months and then put it aside and then come back to it a few months later and so you wrote that as a as a side project that wasn't contracted at the time. You just basically were waiting to see what would happen with it. Yeah, I was just playing with it on the side. Yeah. And do you have an agent? Like, do you work with an agent? Mm, I do now. Okay. I I didn't have an agent for a long time. Um, so I now have Claire Forster from Curtis Brown. She's oh, been yeah. looking after me for about three years, I think. And what uh, made you make the switch to having an agent? Mm, I just felt like I needed somebody there to help me juggle all the contracts and all the bits and pieces, things were falling through the cracks. Mm. Just And, um, look, I don't know whether I can give you a hard and fast answer. It's just almost like a psychological thing. I, I like having somebody on my side who's who's sort of monitoring my career a bit and putting out feelers overseas and, mm. you know, just pushing things along gently for me. Mm. Yeah. Okay. And for, you know, it's like Claire kind of holds my hand. It's really nice. Well, that's one of those things, isn't it? Because it's a question that um, I often get asked, that we are often asked, is, you know, you, do, do you need an agent and, mm-hmm. and why would you? And, and it's, I always find it interesting to ask people because yeah. not all published authors use an agent no. um, and the reasons why people do vary. So I yes. just think it's always a good a good question to yeah. put out there. And Claire and I sort of established early on that she she doesn't get terribly involved in the creative process with me. I, it's always very much myself and Lisa, my publisher. Mm-hmm. Um, Claire just really looks after the contracts and all the the overseas, the rights, you know, rights and what they're like. They can be a bit of a nightmare. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so she does all that. All right, so your new book is a picture book and this is a new area for you. Yeah. Was there anything you found surprising about making the switch to that genre? Well, I had a lot of trouble writing picture books. I couldn't, I was stuck with picture books. I just couldn't pull them off. Mm. Um, even though I was writing all these novels over the years, every time I sat down to write a picture book, I went into that, that inner critic just got really savage. Mm. And I had this thing in my head that, that a picture book had to be really worthy. And so so every time I sat down, I had all the CBCA were sitting with me <laughs> and raising their eyebrows and saying this was rubbish, you know. Oh. I just And so I kept giving up. 
and so, or, or I would write really earnest, really awful, serious books. You know, I wrote one based on the Lady of Shalott. I'm like, what? Oh, wow. Okay. Um, and sort of, oh, I don't know. Anyway, so um, so Clary came out of um, one day I was in a cafe and I didn't, I was just doing some people watching. I didn't even have a pad and pen with me, just having a cup of tea. And I saw this older woman, I think she was a grandmother, and she had like a little boy on her knee. He was about three. And they had one of those, you know how in cafes I often have those really crappy picture books? Mm. Yes. <laughs> sort of mass-produced, soulless things. Anyway. She was reading this book to the little boy and I was watching and the little boy was so desperate to get into the story. You could really tell by his body language that he really wanted to enjoy it, but he wasn't. Mm. Um, he wasn't enjoying it at all. And I just thought, what would I do if I had that kid on my knee and I was trying to read him a really bad picture book? And I thought, oh, I'd make up words. I'd make up really silly words and I'd flip it all around and just make it really silly. And then I thought, Hang on a minute. <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> that could be an idea for a picture book. And so I sort of gathered up my belongings and scuttled off home and started mucking around with words. And that's you've always loved. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So it was a number of things at play though, because I was also I've been studying art for about three years just at, you know, night classes. And at that point I was learning how to draw circles. <laughs> lot of eggs mm. and um and also cakes and stuff like that and I don't know out of all that this character this funny old farmer who loved chickens called Clary kind of emerged literally overnight you know when he did emerge he emerged quickly mm. and um he started talking and uh he got all his words mixed up and I just thought oh you're adorable let's tell your story and so yeah, I kind of I lost my fear and I just wrote from the heart. And that's what I always tell authors, you know, write from the heart. Don't worry about critics, judges or uh, the market. Just write from the heart and then your heart will respond to somebody else's heart. Which is interesting. And the other thing I find interesting too because I read your blog, which is called yeah. Baxter Street and which is just beautiful. Um, and you often share pages and thoughts from your journal, your diary, and you have a lot of illustrations. But you, I, I wondered... Is is illustrating your own picture book at some stage something that you would do? No, no. Why is that? I don't know. I just don't. Well, I know. I just know how much work is involved and how amazingly skilled the illustrators are. I just admire them so, so much. And it's. I just know that, that I'm not cut out for that, you know. Right. I love doing art and I love drawing, but I don't want to make it something that I have to do. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So with your journal, do you journal every day? Writing or, or art? Either, yeah, either. Uh, accidentally every day but not purposely. Right, okay. Yeah, so I would never, ever tell anyone to write every day. That would just destroy me if I had to write every day, if I felt that was uh, part of it because um, some days you just don't want to write and you just want to look <laughs> and take stuff in. Uh, I do... I do do morning pages. I'm back on that train at the moment, um, some t which is from the artist's way. So she, um, Julia Cameron, advises you to do three pages stream of consciousness every morning. Yep. And uh, I did that 
when I was first starting out, I did that for about six years straight. It really kept me saying, I find it more beneficial than meditation. And then, and then sometimes I drop off the train and I don't do them sometimes for years. And in the last six months, I've just come back to morning pages and I'm loving doing it again. It's very, it's almost like a sacred place. Like I get up before everybody else in the house and I light the candle and I sit down with my journal and away I go. So you're actually hand, like you're actually writing mm, longhand. Absolutely, handwriting. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So a lot of it you can't even read when you go back. I was say I wouldn't be able to read mine at all. Yeah, yeah. Okay. But I do find that ideas tend to flow, and it's it's really really good. This sort of brain dump, and also you know it can be really whingy and boring. You wouldn't want to read back over it. <laughs> <laughs> it's literally stream of consciousness. So mm. how do you um like? How do you fit writing, you know, is, are you, do you write full-time? Would you call yourself a full-time writer? Like how do you fit writing yes, into your life? Yes, I'm a full-time writer. But it's not so bad for me now because um, my kids have left home. So, um, you know, my days are my own now. Uh, so I just sort of I schedule everything and I have, I have you know, what, I work out what I have to do, how many words a day I have to do, how many words, the, you know, I have to achieve. And, I, and I'm pretty good. I'm pretty disciplined I suppose because you are working on multiple projects aren't you at at any given time yeah so I have to be pretty pretty careful about how I schedule things but that's not to say that I don't stuff up all the time because (laughs) (laughs) like at the moment you know I'm just in meltdown over truly tan I the sixth book you know I've just got another I just had a month's um extension it's like handing in an essay um from my publisher because this is a busy year for me there's a lot of other stuff going on so um yeah it's challenging so you've got looming deadline and that horrible feeling that comes with having to hand in your homework that's right so I've got to write the sixth truly tan book the third Danny Best book and I'm doing I'm studying business online at the moment um because I'm interested in doing some other stuff plus I'm teaching creative writing and yeah so there's a lot going on but it's all about scheduling and being routine yeah Yeah. I learned this thing today actually I learned this thing called um because creative people you would know yourself often have a lot of trouble saying no yes you know and uh so I heard this thing about today about jump on the no train (laughs) and when anybody asks you to do anything, try to make your first response no, <laughs> even if it's only just internal, right? Yeah. And then really think about it. Yeah. Really think about is this the best use of my time? Yeah. Will I spend time resenting this and regretting um, because I won't get that time back again? Yeah, right? which is so true. So, so you're practicing the no train, are you? As from this week, <laughs> it's a new one for me. Keep us posted on how you get on with that. <laughs> you say your answer to that is no, Alison. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> yes, exactly. All right. So let's talk about how do you feel about the idea? Because um, you know, with as many projects as you have, you must spend a bit of time with promotion. Like it's part of the job now. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about this idea of the, you know, the author platform? Do you do a lot of, um, are you active on social media? I know you, you, as I said, you have your website, you have your blog. Mm-hmm. Um, do you consciously do any other things to kind of build your profile or sort of keep, keep it all going? Uh, I, my blogging is really important to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't do a lot of school visits. I, I, I did do a fair few for a while there and then I realised that that was just 
school visits exhaust me. It's not just the visit. I enjoy the visit, visit, but it's the lead up to it. It's everything that goes around the school visit, trying to get there, find out where it is, transport, yeah. parking. And I just thought, you know what, I'm better off writing. Yes. <laughs> I need to master my craft, not not go running around schools. Yep. Um, so so I don't do a lot of that. I, I, look, I'm a very, I'm a plotter, you know. I don't, I just keep my eye on the ball and I keep moving forward and to me at the end of the day what's really important is the book you know the quality of the book not my platform not my twitter feed not how many followers I've got on facebook it's it's yeah so that's really my focus yeah so as far as like does your publisher expect you to do promotion work at all like do you have any are there sort of do you feel any pressure around that at all there are a few things but they're certainly not hardcore um at all uh but i am going on tour i use inverted commas Um, (laughs) later later this year it's called the telling tales tour and that's that's funded by harper collins and so they're sending myself and Jude Rossell and Kate Nanestead. Um, oh, that'll be fun. What <laughs> a great team. Okay. So we're flitting about. We're going Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne and regional Victoria, I think. Yeah. So that's that's sort of looming. And I'm looking forward to that, but I'm also a bit stressed about it as well because it'll take me away from my work. Mm. Um, and there's deadlines around that time mm. and, you know, you're on the road for three days and for someone like me, I'm an introvert, it takes me a couple of days to come down mm. uh, I can't, and I can't write when I'm in transit, when I'm on the move. I need, I need my space to write. Mm. So, um, so that's, you know, it's a, it's a double-edged sort of a thing. It's a great opportunity to promote our books and to get out there and meet the readers but it's also very time-consuming and yeah. a bit stressful. Well, that's the problem, I think, isn't it? As far you know, I think all authors find themselves in the same boat of that. You know, yeah. they want to write the next book, but they've got to. You sort of got to keep up the interest in the books that you have out there. That's right. Yeah, mm. yeah. And you know, it can be very, a very hard world out there, can't it? In terms of books, I remember a bookseller once telling me, "Oh, Jen, you know, books have a shelf life of a tub of yogurt." Yeah. <laughs> Thanks oh, for that. That's, that's really reassuring. <laughs> so, you know, your book goes off. Oh. So you do have to take that window of opportunity when it first comes out and there's you know, interest is at its highest, mm. yeah, to promote it. All right. So just to finish up today, um, we have to ask you the big question of your top three tips for writers. Mm-hmm. What, um, what three tips would you give aspiring writers? Oh, it's funny you should ask that because I – I just was talking about this to my uh, class the other night. I teach how to write books for children. And uh, I talk about the three Ps, which is patience, perseverance and passion. Oh, there you go. And so they're the three things that I like. Look at you. (laughs) You've got a slogan and everything. (laughs) I know, a slogan, rah, rah. Right, so talk me through the three Ps. Okay, so patience is very important. I find that very much in aspiring authors that they're in a hurry mm. and it's, it's a it's a writing is very difficult it's very multi-leveled as you know and you have to really apply yourself and you cannot expect to write a bestseller just make up making up your mind and sitting down you know mm. you, you have to learn the craft it's just like you know I say to my students I can sing beautiful arias in my head mm. <laughs> but you don't want to hear me open my mouth <laughs> <laughs> 
it's you really have to work at it it's like anything that's worthwhile it takes a lot of work so there's that's where the patience comes in patience also comes in of course when you're dealing with the publishing industry which you know moves like an old mechanical crab (laughs) the pace um can drive you nuts especially at the beginning um so perseverance is the same sort of thing it's really you know persevering with it hanging in there when when the chips are down just soldiering on and um truly tam was, is a good example of perseverance you know yeah, i definitely. kept that in my heart i kept it alive and went back to it um and passion and passion i think is the one that is really easy to overlook but it's really really important because if you're not if you're not writing with passion then you become really miserable because creative writing is really hard work mm. Um, and if you've lost your passion, then you you just won't enjoy the process anymore. So you need to keep fueling that passion and be very mindful of it and do it regularly, not just, you know, every six months do something. Yeah, but yeah. I, I think, if, you know, every week you should be immersing yourself in something that reminds you about why you love literature. And that's that's probably not reading other people's books. You know, it might be for some. But sometimes re- when you're aspiring and you start reading other people's work, it can be very intimidating. It can yes. actually, yeah, it can actually crush your spirit. So, what would you suggest instead? Anything that makes you feel alive, if, even if it's just walking in nature and makes you feel happy again, or picking up some, uh, you know, poetry from really old poetry from that you know you're not going to try and Im- imitate, but but that just brings that feeling, that feeling in your heart when you read something that's just so moving. Oh, last yeah. night I watched a special about the Brontes. Oh yeah, you know, and I just thought, oh my god, I, uh, or I go go to the movies. The movies just always inspire me. Excellent. All right, Jen, well, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it, and I'm sure that our um, listeners will have learned a lot. You had some very interesting stories there. So, um, yeah, thank you very much. Thanks, Sal. It was great. Thank you very much. Wow, that was awesome. I loved what she spoke about um, about having an agent. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a, that's a, an interesting question, and it's a question that um, a lot of people ask, particularly you know emerging writers and things like that. It's like, do I need an agent? Mm. And I think it's always interesting to listen to the reasons why people have one or why they don't have one. Um, and in Jen's instance, she of course does have one, and the you know that idea of there being someone in your corner and someone to bounce ideas off regarding your career and things like that. I think that's a, it's a main reason why a lot of authors do do maintain an agent. Mm-hmm. I think when you are first starting out, it's great to, um, you know, an agent can really get you indoors that are often not open otherwise or take a very, 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 very long time to be opened. Mm. Um, but the idea of why someone who is established as she is and has been for a long time, why she maintains an agent, I think it's it's worth having a listen to that. Awesome. Now let's move on to something completely different, which is uh, something that The Guardian wrote about, and it's a it's a little gadget called FreeWrite, which uh, began on Kickstarter and um, costs a whopping five hundred bucks, uh, which is I think it could probably five hundred US. Um, and what it is, it's like a little typewriter word processor, where um, there's a little screen and it connects it. it, it and what it does is you can simply write. So you are not at your computer connected to the internet. 
tempted to check Facebook or tempted to look up stuff, you have to just write. So, mm. you know, like like a typewriter. <laughs> well, precisely. And, you know, there, there there's a few of these around. There's, I remember when I was working, when I used to be going to the uh, Romance Writers of Australia conferences a few years ago, a lot of the writers there used a word processor, and I can't think of the name of it, but it was the really? same thing. It was like you could only see the last line that you'd written. Wow. And, yeah, and they were using it. Um, I don't know if they still are, but they were using it rather than using a computer for the simple fact that they couldn't edit. It was all about then. It wasn't so much about the internet at that point. It was Mm. a few years ago. It was all about the fact that they couldn't edit. They had to keep going forward. And it was for people who were just um, trying to stop themselves from doing that polish, 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 polish on the first um, chapter and never actually getting to the end of the novel. But they swore by them. Yeah, right. Like those apps like Write or Die or whatever, or, you know, yeah, yeah, where yeah. you just have to keep your fingers on the keyboard yeah, and you yeah. they, you can't let 15 seconds go past without typing. It's, um, yeah, it could be useful. Yep. Anyway, just thought we'd throw that in in case anyone wants to spend 500 bucks on something. <laughs> Why not? Uh, now, working writer's tip, what have we got this week, Al? Okay, so this week we're going to talk about author websites because, you know, I'm just, I'm in the zone with author websites at the moment. Mm -hmm. And one of the questions that comes up a lot with author websites, and I've had several conversations with people about this particular subject, is this idea of whether or not I, you know, I, being the author in question, should publish bits of my work in progress on my author website or if I should sort of upload my latest chapter Mm. or samples and things like that. and I think the reason it comes up is I think that people think if they put their writing out there on the internet that, you know, they might attract the eye of an agent or editor just randomly maybe or build an audience for their work that way. Um, But here's – so I'm going to ask you the question first. Do I publish bits of my work in progress on my author website, Valerie? I would say no, but I would say you can talk about the work that you are doing. So you might write about the fact that you are writing a historical fiction novel or you might write about the fact that, you know, you might discover some research as you go along and that's a particularly interesting factoid or whatever and you might Mm -hmm. write about that. Mm -hmm. And so you talk about your work but you don't necessarily put your work out there. You might perhaps talk about, say, a character that you're forming or something like that but I probably wouldn't put, you know, significant chunks of work out there. No, and that to me would be the absolute correct answer. So I found a – I came across a blog post this week by the fabulous Jane Friedman, who mm. I've talked about before, and she's such a sensible voice in this area. Mm. Um, she has published a, a piece, a guest post, on the Writer Unboxed blog. And she – as she says, she's been – you know, for five years or so, she's been teaching classes on how to build and optimise author website. So she – you know, she helps you through every step of the process – like from getting your domain name and Mm. actually building the site. But the question is, you know, is it okay if I publish my book on my website? And as she said, it gets expressed in a multitude of ways, such as what if I post full chapters of my book on my website or blog? Mm. If I serialise my book on my website or blog, is it considered published? And how can I charge a subscription fee for work I publish at my website? All right, so her first answer is a very direct one. (laughs) Sure, Posting content you own at your website is okay, but why 
do it. What do you gain by posting your book in part or in its entirety on your website? How will anyone know it's there? And why will anyone want to read it on a website? Like, what are you trying to accomplish? Like, at, at the end of the day, you've got to ask yourself your goal. So the the thing I think is really important to remember, and this is, this is I think, the telling point of the whole post, an author website is primarily a marketing tool not a publishing and distribution tool. Yeah. And I think it's really important when you're putting your website together to remember that. Yeah, absolutely. What you're doing on your author website is marketing yourself and your work. You're not necessarily distributing your work. It's a business card for you as mm. opposed to being, you know. I And the other thing you've got to remember too is that if you publish your entire novel or whatever, even in serial form, on your website, why when it's out there for free, is an, is a publisher going to want to pay you to publish it? <laughs> yes. And, of course, this is an essential part. Your author website and getting that right is an essential part of your author platform. And Absolutely. We, we talk about that. We go into a step-by-step what you need to do for that in your course, don't we, Al? We do. Uh, we absolutely do. Build, how to build your author platform. And if you want to check that out, go to writercenter.com.au slash platform hmm. because it's a – wonderful blueprint on uh, exactly how to build your author platform and thank you to everyone who has sent us feedback and and, and mentions on social media about yeah, that's it's been that's been fantastic yeah. I'm so pleased that so many of you are, are getting so much out of it and yes. finding it so incredibly useful it's brilliant yeah very very exciting so um that's that's oh, it. I think that's the, that's the end of our that's and- yes goodness me time flies when you almost at 100 episodes huh Oh, absolutely! Just, just oh, belting along. <laughs> what are you up to in this coming week? Uh, this week I'm editing. I've got two manuscripts to edit, so I'm working on those. I've got some corporate work to do, so I'm doing that. I'm updating my Mapmaker Chronicles website because you know one of the things I talk about in my author platform is how important it is to keep these things up to date. Yes. So I'm practicing what I preach, people. And I'm going through and actually just making sure that all the bits and pieces on that are up to date. So that's that's my five-day blueprint. What, what are you doing? <laughs> well, I'm meant to be spending time on this nonfiction project that I am working on, which I thought I would be <gasps> a lot further oh, wait. along. Oh, wait. I've got to ask you a question. Ask. Now, remember last week Yes. you had made the quintessential error uh-huh. of stopping a project that you were working on to follow up a bright oh, shiny new idea yes and we talked about how you were going to prioritize and <laughs> we did all that so yes. what did you do Valerie I did prioritize one I prioritized the one that was going that was nearest to completion Woo-hoo! so that yes Correct so that I could get answer, to the Valerie. end yes but that wasn't the one that I had promised myself the Bonoffi pie on Oh, that's see? the other one, which now oh. I'm I'm quite frankly quite amazed at my willpower at this stage, <laughs> because yes, I'm, it is quite a bit of um a, a little bit of more of a wait before I get my, my banoffee pie when mm. I finish that see, one. See, if I promised myself banoffee pie, I'd never do it. Why? I'd be like, yeah, because I cannot. Ooh. Oh, because you don't like bananas. Okay. Well, obviously you would promise yourself something <laughs> else, Alison. <laughs> you would incentivize yourself. I just want to be like you, Val. I just want to do what you do. <laughs> right. Uh, 
But maybe not the Bonoffi part. But now it's going to be delayed even further because this week is full of distractions because I've got a conference to go to and then I've got to fly to Brisbane to speak at a conference and I'll be catching up with uh, 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 some of our grads there. Um, so that should be who are also going to the um, to the event. So yeah, that should be fun. Sounds. Fabulous. Yes. It doesn't sound very productive as I far know, as your project is concerned. I know. No Banoffee Pie this week either. And will we see you on Instagram sharing many photos of your fabulous conference? Most likely. While I share photos of my leaping dog. Did you see that photo? I of did. Procrasti- of Procrasti- action? Yes. No, chasing bubbles. So cute. Anyway, <laughs> sorry, completely off target. I'm disrupting the interview. Yeah, Let's you go. are disrupting uh-huh. it. So perhaps we should wrap up. Where do we find you online, Out. Uh, you'll find me on my website, alisontate.com. You'll find me on Twitter at, at Al Tate, and you will find me on Facebook and Instagram at Alison Tate Writer. You'll find me on uh, Instagram and Twitter at Valerie Koo, and I'm um, pretty easy to find on Facebook. Just search for Valerie Koo. And if you're looking for the show notes, go to writerscentercomau slash podcasts and you'll find the show notes for So You Want to Be a Writer. But uh, until next week, we will chat to you then. Bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercenter.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.